0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. Late last month, the principal members of one of the richest families in Germany made an announcement that their father and grandfather, who ran the company, were Nazi Party supporters who used forced labor. The Reimann family owns JAB Holding Company, it owns Panera Bread, Krispy Kreme, Caribou Coffee, Snapple Dr. Pepper, and a host of other familiar brands. It's estimated the four principals are worth about $16 billion. The family has made a donation of $11 million to an unspecified charity. They say a report uh, about the situation is going to be released to the public when it's completed next year. It's another chapter in the ongoing conversation about reparations and historical memory. We're going to talk about it now with Jonathan Jonathan Wieson. He's chair of the Department of History at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He's author of Creating the Nazi Marketplace, Commerce and Consumption in the Third Reich. Thanks very much for joining us, Jonathan. Good to be here. You know, I think a lot of people looked at this uh, story about the Ryman family and kind of wondered, you know— it goes back to the question, how much is enough? Uh, they decided to make a $11 million donation to an unspecified charity. They're worth $16 billion. It it kind of, um, it doesn't seem like enough.
1: Yes, it is striking. One is always amazed in these stories uh, when you hear the numbers of how much companies will contribute, because we have had a history, of course, especially in the 2000s, of major German companies from Steimler-Benz that makes uh, Mercedes. We have Bayer Pharmaceuticals, et cetera, making compensation payments. But it's never clear what the thinking is in the company. How much are they going to give? Now, these are negotiated. These are uh, thought through in the boardrooms. But you do wonder how much uh, really is enough. And it's an open question. You know, this is a drop in the bucket when you're talking about billions of tens of billions of dollars. But, you know, and where is this uh, 11 million going to go? The charity is still unclear. But it's certainly a gesture. And we'll see what uh, comes of it.
0: Now, in this case, JAB Holding Company had been around for a long time, and there were conversations about what to do with it at the end of World War II. And the French wanted to shut it down, and the the, the U.S. vetoed that. Apparently, and so there was some conversation. And this was—I mean, they were uh, they were a functioning company in Germany during World War II. So the, people knew that they were uh, involved, right? I mean, it's it's kind of a known thing.
1: It is a known thing, though it's interesting that the family uh, company that was active in the Third Reich, a company known as uh, Reckitt bankitzer which owns brands today like Calgon, Airwick, Lysol – Vanish, Clearasil, you can just go down the list or open your uh, medicine cabinet and see. These companies, of course, are known to us, these brands, but that actual company where most of the Rymans got their fortune was not among the big names. So it was a relatively small company in the Third Reich, yet they like the large companies, mostly the automobile companies, did employ forced labor and slave labor very brutally, I must add. And that's something that the family now has to come to terms with. And they've been fairly open about this. But again, where do they go from here? And where does that 11 million go? And where does their apology go? Is an apology enough? These are sort of the questions that we're struggling with now. Uh, how does this fit into other things that are happening um,
0: these days? I think a lot of people probably notice that Monsanto is um, involved in a lot of lawsuits here about cancer-causing aspects uh, of of the weed killer um, that um, that Roundup that everybody uses. Um, it, it's um, but it's it's owned by Bayer now, which is a company that has a history in Germany and um it kind of creates a uh, i don't know what a historical memory situation where you where you think about uh how, you know why is this company acquiring this company that is cancer causing you know what do, do these companies just keep doing bad things
1: yeah it's such a good question because you see sort of two memory cultures in uh, in conjunction at this point, an American system where we have, for example, Monsanto, who also, along with Dow, made Agent Orange for the Vietnam War, now sort of colliding with the history of Bayer, which is, or as they say in Germany, Bayer, which not only had uh, the invented aspirin, which is, of course, a wonderful thing, but also heroin, but also more troublingly during the Third Reich, they were part of a conglomerate, IG Farben, along with BASF and Hoechst chemical companies that ran slave labor right at Auschwitz. So when you have people who were slave laborers working themselves to death and being put into the gas chambers eventually. They were working for IG Farben and then, of course, for Bayer. So now Bayer in 2017 then or 2018 purchases Monsanto. And when that happened, I wondered to myself, are they gluttons for punishment? Obviously, this is a huge company and this is a question of the bottom line. But now they have to pay out $80 million to one defendant and there are – uh, thousands upon thousands of more uh, more suits against Monsanto and thus against Bayer. So you do wonder what the thinking is and whether they were caught flat-footed or whether they simply had the deep pockets to take care of it. Uh,
0: well, it, I mean, one of the things that, you know, compensation and reparations are supposed to do, they're supposed to, in, in a theory, create some kind of um, learning experience or healing, right? I mean, you're supposed to uh, turn the page and get better <laughs> instead of you know uh, instead of just kind of perpetuating more uh, bad judgment to to put it loosely.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point because not only have some of these major German companies, and we're talking about Porsche, we're talking about uh, VW, we're talking about uh, BMW, on and on we go. They've not only given money to surviving slave laborers and forced that they've used in their factories, but they've set up foundations uh, that are devoted to historical memory, devoted to questions of democracy and minority rights and human rights. So you do wonder whether is that enough? Now, I do give credit to these corporations for actually sort of being involved in very important dialogues that are useful and progressive in helping people to solve problems that face us today. But then they keep making some foolish mistakes, whether it be somebody like a few days ago, the head of uh, Volkswagen, who made the statement um, basically uh, on with a play on Arbeit, Arbeit macht frei, work sets you free, which was the sign above all the concentration and death camps. He said um, basically – Edith macht frei. is is short for earnings before interest and taxes. And he had to apologize because he made a joke or a pun based on that horrible Arbeit macht frei, work sets you free. So people step into it. But, you know, that's a small uh, question. The larger question, again, is whether apologies go particularly far. So today, for example, Belgium, apologize for its treatment of colonials. And this was heard by your viewers, uh, your listeners at the top of the hour, apologize for kidnapping people in Belgian Africa and bringing them back to Belgium, the mistreatment of these mixed race children. And so where does it go from here? Is it an po- apology enough? And will this learning process continue? And I think in many cases, companies in Germany have set the standard. And I can talk to you about how American companies can learn a little bit and have learned a little bit from this. But we can't forget that there's a sort of parallel development going on here in some ways.
0: I'm talking with Jonathan Wieson, chair of the history department at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He's author of Creating the Nazi Marketplace, Commerce and Consumption in the Third Reich. And we're talking a bit about uh, historical memory and reparations. Well – how does this uh, apply you know to the u s case obviously there 's a lot of discussion about reparations and slavery and uh, whether uh, what you know is what would be a a decent kind of compensation what would be a rational kind of compensation um, how do you How does that fold into what we know about what we 've been talking about with germany
1: yeah what 's fascinating is that some uh people in this case groups who felt they had standing. Uh, actually filed lawsuits against some of the old American companies, banking companies that had, for example, taken out insurance policies on slaves whether it be Aetna or Fleet Bank or uh, Lloyd's of London in Britain. And now there was uh, an attempt in the 2000s when this was really a larger discussion to actually sue these companies for damages, and judges ultimately in the United States dismissed it. But what's interesting is that the uh, victim groups or those who are descendant from victim groups uh, had looked to the case of Germany where there were lost lawsuits and where Jewish and non-Jewish victims of the Holocaust and Nazi policies have gotten some compensation. But what's fascinating, what's different about it is, of course, the time period. Now, we're still dealing with uh, some of those um, millions of slave laborers who worked in Nazi factories and on farms and what have you. But of course, now with the question of reparations, we have the issues of relating to people who are the descendants of those who were enslaved or on chain gangs or abused in some way. And there it gets tricky because there the lesson might not be uh, that you can give money to individuals, but that you have to, as a company, uh, support initiatives that really are about reckoning with the past. And I think that's key. Coming to terms with the past is so central to a democracy, uh, whether it be in Germany, whether it be in Europe, uh, broadly, whether it be in the United States
0: one of the things that is true about uh the slavery situation or the germany situation or any other is uh, how much did the did the companies profit from this behavior and um, when you extrapolate it forward they're building on that wealth that they uh created with this uh bad behavior and uh, you know it, this uh, this family in Germany obviously is a pretty acute example of that that they 've really been able to just multiply their holdings over the years, but the core of it the nut of it was uh if the nut of it was so bad that you know it seems like they 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 should you know it doesn 't do enough
1: yeah it 's really uh again back to that original question which i 'm self my, I myself am grappling with is that, you know, what does $11 million, $11.3 million do? It's a drop in the bucket, obviously, when you look at the massive holdings that the JAB holdings Uh, company has in its portfolio. uh, And you do wonder, you know, where is this going to go? Is it going to go to a foundation and then supports uh, some sort of reckoning with the past or supports some graduate students or other scholars who come to Germany? Those are very noble things. There's no question. But you do wonder how you kind of deal with the financial reality that these are monies that are directly sort of built upon uh, from – the earnings and profits that corporations and small businesses and middle sized businesses made during and from the Holocaust. And so what is our standard? Do we say 22 million, 33 million? But it's undoubtedly a tiny company. Now, the Ryman family has expressed its horror at the findings of these scholars who are now working more directly on their family history. And they are, have talked about their shame and their desperation of this and even have said that their father and grandfather should have been in prison. But again, when it comes to it, do we gain more by having a really solid and even punitive uh, uh, payment that reflects something that might even hurt the company rather than simply a token?
0: Um, You know, in the U.S. case, uh, we have this structural problem and, you know, we've got African-Americans who are still stuck in a structural hole because of uh, what happened uh, with slavery. And uh, there's – you know, it seems like rectifying that is something that would be – or, you know, at least making an effort to rectify that would be something that would be uh, just. I mean is there – is that – it's a, it's kind of a different kettle of fish, but it's the same uh, thing in a way.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I absolutely agree. And, you know, we look at some of our most elite universities, Brown University, Harvard University, 10 plus universities in Virginia are now struggling with the reality that they were founded with money uh, based on the slave trade, or some something related to slavery. And, you know, they've been talking about reparations. But what's been tricky about reparations is is that the courts have more or less thrown it out. But then what form should it take? So obviously in many northern cities or in southern cities where I am, there's tremendous discrepancies in wealth. And how can a company and our society more broadly deal with that? And I think at the very least, it's important for these universities or for Fleet Bank or for other companies that were involved to really commit themselves to a culture of memory and a culture of memory through payments, whether you can devise a system whereby you can actually sort of compensate people uh, directly is another question. But are they pouring money into uh, fighting issues of school segregation? Are they pouring money into questions of mass incarceration? you'd know, you have to go company by company and they often do have uh, branches to their company that deal very much with corporate sponsorship and donations and charity. But it's not as much of a discussion in the United States as it should be, I believe. And I think that's what's unique about the German case in that sort of the democracy that was built after 1945 in West Germany was based on a culture of memory. And I think here we don't have that, whether it be with respect... Uh, to African-Americans or to Native American peoples. And down here in Alabama where I am, there is an incredible gesture towards sort of discussing the past, whether it be with Confederate monuments elsewhere, of course, around the US. But it is really striking to be here where there is sort of an open discussion about what one does with the legacy, say, of Jim Crow. But again, these are very difficult questions because how do you devise a system of reparations? I kind of leave that as a question mark.
0: And when is it enough? I imagine the companies and the people involved in some of these probably think at times, well, we've done enough. And, uh, or at least we seem to have done a lot and we think we've done a, you know, a pretty good job. When do people stop pointing the finger?
1: Exactly. And I think there's always this hope. You know, you can have expressions of contrition. You can have expressions of horror. You can have these charities that are set up. And I think that's very important. But there's always the bottom line. And I don't mean to sound crude about it, but I think even the uh, corporation leaders and company leaders that I've talked to with my uh, earlier projects in Germany will be the first to admit it. In fact, when Germany set up in the year 2000 a foundation devoted to the compensation of former slave and forced laborers, the chancellor at the time, Gerhard Schroeder, said, You know, this should put an end to the attacks on our co- country. So there is this sense that you can sort of pay your way and then hopefully the past will go away. Now, again, how do you decide what percentage of your fortune, your family fortune, or your corporate uh, earnings should go to this? And these are very small percentages. And a discussion, I think, is, should, should continue about sort of how you uh, compensate people and how you, you know, use corporate citizenship to keep these discussions going.
0: Jonathan Wiesen is chair of the Department of History at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He's author of Creating the Nazi Marketplace, Commerce and Consumption in the Third Reich. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about some of the issues involving historical memory and uh, compensation. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we're going to have a conversation about a peace action summit that's happening this weekend with the young people who put it together. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. We'll This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. On Saturday, there's a Peace Summit at Loyola University. It's organized by Chicago Peace Action. Two members of the Loyola and DePaul chapters of Chicago Peace Action are here with me. Jack Bertrand is the president of the DePaul chapter, and Quinn Sullivan is president of the Loyola chapter of Peace Action. Great to meet you both.
2: Thanks so much for having us.
0: Yeah, glad to be here. Why did you get involved in peace activism, be a part of this movement?
3: So for me, uh, it was literally just starting my education with political science, uh, starting to study foreign policy, the way America kind of fits into the world and how we see ourselves. And kind of our active role in the world was not something I felt was appropriately taken. I didn't think kind of the position we felt we had to take in the world was just. And I felt bring attention, bring light to some of the activities that I didn't find just uh, was an appropriate way. And I felt the student body was the most accessible group to go after. So that's where I started. Quinn, how about you?
2: Yeah, I think my answer is a bit more discombobulated than Jack's. I didn't know much at all about the peace movement until I got to college at Loyola. Um, I've done a lot of social justice stuff all throughout my life, a lot in high school, but this was kind of random. I walked into the career fair uh, freshman year and met our really awesome mentor, Hassan Al-Taib, and he introduced me to this. He sparked my interest. I decided to apply for this position as a student organizer for Chicago Area Peace Action, and realized it, it was different than what I'd done before, but really aligned with a lot of my interests in fighting for social justice across the world.
0: Explain what Peace Action is. It, it bills itself as the largest grassroots peace organization in the country.
3: Yeah, it is. So it actually has networks uh, or affiliates in all 50 states. And there's one in Chicago that kind of represents Illinois, but there's also affiliates all across the country. And they started in the 70s trying to tackle uh, nuclear disarmament And from there, it's been uh, kind of adapted into this peace action movement, and it focuses primarily on foreign policy, but also it helps to try and get certain individuals elected that kind of help align what they see as their agenda.
2: We also, for Kappa, focus a lot on foreign affairs stuff, but we also have a climate change group. So different affiliates across the country kind of take it in whatever way they see fit in their local area.
0: And I understand you went to the National Convention for Peace Action. And what was that like?
2: Uh, It was pretty cool. So I had the privilege of going last year as well. So this is my second time uh, just a couple weeks ago. I mean, we have this incredible spot. We are right across the street from the Supreme Court and right across the other way from the United States Capitol. So it was amazing to just be in that physical location. And then the first two days, we get to learn a lot about different foreign policy issues, um, hear from some insiders who work in DC all the time. Uh, And the third day, we actually get to go meet with representatives in Congress. Um, We met a senator when we were there a couple weeks ago. So it's really cool to fight for our issues in such an important arena.
3: Yeah, it was great to be on Capitol Hill, uh, kind of get a feel for everything, see the policies and see the bills that we've been trying to promote. And we got to meet a senator who actually uh, introduced one of our bills. And it was great to discuss with him, even in passing, uh, and help us promote that bill. Uh, What bill was it? Uh, So that was H.R. 1004. And that was in relation to uh, unauthorized military action by the United States in Venezuela. So I was trying to prohibit that.
0: Now, is there a a difference between, you know, the kind of agendas you want to have as student chapter organizers compared to the old guard maybe in the peace action area quinn
2: yeah I have a lot of other interests outside of my work in this group that can be related back to peace issues. Um, and we also have a very fresh take, you know, as a lot of people accidentally refer to us as kids uh, in this movement. We are young. We're not kids anymore, but we are very new to this. There are a lot of social justice issues that are affecting our generation um, that maybe didn't affect the other people we're working with in this peace movement. So yeah, there is a little bit of difference there. but. I think overall, we have the same goals. We maybe just don't know exactly how to strategize together all of the time to meet them.
3: Yeah, I'd agree with that as well. I'd say ultimately the end goals are the same, but sometimes the generational means to get there are separated a little bit. And I think the tactics of student organizers, we have energy and we have a lot of charisma, but the old guard, as you referred to them, uh... They have a lot of experience and they have a lot of knowledge that work in conjunction with each other and they shouldn't be separated necessarily.
0: What kind of things do you want to see that's different?
2: Yeah, this is one thing that actually came up during our conference a lot is the importance of highlighting the voices of the people that are most affected by injustice and war and violence. Um, Everyone knows the peace movement is pretty white. Uh, It's also pretty old. And it's important, I think, for us to remember why we're actually doing this, whose voices we need to elevate so that we're doing it correctly. I think that can be forgotten a little bit on both sides. I don't think that us young people have it down either, but I think that's definitely something we need to have more conversations about and make more strides to deliver on.
0: You know, I was talking with some of the people who support the Green New Deal, young people who support the Green New Deal, and they like it. I was asking some of the school strikers, well, why not a carbon tax? Why don't you just go, everybody's been working so hard on a carbon tax? And that, you know, just went right over their heads. They just didn't care. But they like the social justice aspect of the Green New Deal about getting people jobs, getting people who don't have a voice things. And that seems to be more what young people are after these days. Does that sound about right?
3: Yeah, I'd say it sounds about right. I think for your example of the carbon tax, like that represents a first step. But people our age, we see this grand sweeping change in industry and we see the change coming. And we understand that a comprehensive roadmap like the Green New Deal is comprehensive in a way that it doesn't just try and tackle climate change, but it tries and tackle social issues and the issues in landscape of jobs and employment. So I think it tries to take on a multifaceted where something like a carbon tax is more one-dimensional.
2: Right. I think one of the buzzwords that's at least going around my college campus right now is intersectionality, and that comes up a lot in the peace movement and with issues like the Green New Deal is we need to be able to see nuance and the connections because all of these issues are intertwined with each other, and to tackle any one of them, we have to be able to acknowledge the others.
0: I'm talking with Quinn Sullivan. She is president of the Loyola chapter of Peace Action, and Jack Bertrand, he's president of the DePaul chapter, and we're talking about their peace work that they've been doing, and we've gotten a little far away from the Peace Summit that's <laughs> happening at Loyola University on Saturday. Explain why you want to do this, Quinn, and why, why people have come people have come together to do this thing.
2: Sure. Um, you know, I think it goes back to what I just said, intersectionality. This is really a platform to bring a host of different piece issues together. Um, we have multiple different panels, 10 different breakout session options. So people get to choose uh, which, which issues they want to talk about, but then they get to connect them. They get to realize that climate change is connected to war. And, um, you know, we have to be able to know a little bit about all of them. So I'm really excited to showcase a ton of different issues. I'm really excited to showcase a ton of different local Uh, activists in the Chicago area um, and to connect them because I think it's really important that this peace movement is unified um, and maybe something that we're lacking here in Chicago. So it's been great to meet all of these speakers and um, hope to further connect connect with them in the future.
0: Um, Explain the many different places people are coming from because I saw people on the list who are Honduras activists and people who are Korea activists and people who are uh, Yemen activists, it's, it's, uh, it, it is it's everybody.
2: Yeah. I mean, you hit several big ones. There's people fighting for climate justice um, from Little Village, which is a neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. So um, including something really local like that, that it's affecting a lot of people of color in the area. We have the president of Peace Action himself coming out from D.C., a Korean-American woman who has a lot of expertise on Korea, like you said, Yemen, a Yemeni activist. And again, it's really awesome to be able to highlight the voices of people where peace is absent, really.
0: The conference is open to everyone, Jack. It is not just students or not just people who are in the Peace Action community right now. It's anybody can come and come to any event.
3: Absolutely. We welcome both at Loyola and DePaul for most of our events. They are open to the community. This panel is open to the community. We welcome members from the Chicago area to come listen to a great panel of speakers, as well as a diverse range of topics that show both the nuance and the interconnectedness of the topic. So it should be great.
0: Now, Jack, I understand that DePaul, you've got a couple of things cooking. You gave me a flyer for Love Without Borders refugee art from Yemen and Palestine.
3: Yeah, so we're really happy to be working with uh, a nonprofit based in Greece called Love Without Borders, who is working with various refugee camps based in Greece from uh, the surrounding area, primarily Yemen, Palestine, and Syria. And they will be coming to DePaul's campus on April 9th, (laughs) 1 to 5 p.m. And they'll be highlighting various works of art done by refugees, where 100% of the proceeds go back to the artists who made it. So we're really happy to be working with the well-renowned international organizations such as Love Without Borders.
0: That sounds fun. What other kind of things do you do over the course of the year as student chapter organizers for Peace Action?
2: Yeah, well, a lot of it is definitely educational. I think one thing that sets our group apart from a lot of others on campus is that we do have the two stages of having a lot of educational-based events, but then also taking it to another level and going to meet with our representatives or frequently contacting them to make sure that we take those steps of action. So we had Shireen Alademi, who is a really incredible Yemeni woman and an expert on the Yemen subject, come to speak in December. We've gone to storm our representative's office and then try to have conversations with them and and encourage them to pass legislation or sign on to letters. Um, We do a lot of tabling in our student center, a lot of calling different representatives. Yeah, a lot of cool things like that where we just get together and try to be good constituents, honestly.
3: Jack? Yeah, I'd say DePaul's is not dissimilar to Loyola's where we're trying to both help educate and bring light and attention to certain subjects, as well as actively engage the student body in political action. So we're calling senators, we're calling congresspeople, as well as literally stopping by and visiting their offices. Mike Quigley's office, who represents the Lincoln Park area, is just down the block from us. So we've been there, and we've been able to uh, meet with various in-district staffers, hand them letters, uh, talk with them in person. So it's great to try and engage people that aren't necessarily politically active coming into college and have them more of a political lens as they leave.
0: Do you feel like you're making a difference? I know the Yemen thing has been a prominent thing for both of you, and you're making a difference, and at the same time, it seems like we're not making a difference. There must be a frustration level there.
2: Yeah, there is definitely frustration. (laughs) Sometimes I just get frustrated by how challenging it all is and how much work there is to be done. But our mentor, Hassan, has told me countless times, like, remember the small victories. And to put it into perspective, uh, this is my second year with this organization, and I knew nothing about Yemen coming into college, Um, learned a lot really fast, and then have been working on it ever since. And when I first got here, Congress didn't even want to talk about it. And now we're most likely going to pass a bill to hopefully end this war soon. So... Yes, it's hard. Um, Yes, they are very small victories, but they do add up. And I think it's just important for us to hang on to that hope because change is never very fast.
3: Yeah, I'd agree with that as well. There's kind of a, a necessary momentum to build. And I'm realizing that more and more, especially, I mean, this war has been going on since 2015. And Just in the last year, momentum has slowly been building, and hopefully by tomorrow, a vote in the House, the final vote in the House, should be there. So I think it's slow and it's tedious and it's hard work and it's a time thankless, but it is nonetheless vastly important. And the closer it gets to a vote, the more I start to realize it is very important work.
0: What do you guys think that is going on with young people these days? There are significantly more young people who are engaged I keep thinking about this kind of cycle of activism. It really started with the Parkland kids and Greta Thunberg cites the Parkland kids as an inspiration and people cite Greta Thunberg as an inspiration and young people are, uh, you know, striking all over the planet now for climate change. There seems to be a um, kind of uh, belief that you can make a difference. Is that where you see it or do you feel like your generation is more active
3: I'd say yes, we are more active. Our generation was sort of grown up in this idea that climate change is representing an existential threat, as well as a plethora of other examples that are starting to represent whether it be nuclear war or just continuous involvement of war in the Middle East. I think kids our age are starting to get disheartened at the status quo and are not ready to just sit by passively and let it happen as it washes over them. I think kids our age really do believe they can represent a positive change by working for it. So I think by actively trying to disrupt that status quo, trying to make grand change, trying to really push against what has been so solidified in our culture, in our politics. So I think it's happening. And again, it's kind of a momentum. And I think more students our age, more kids our age are starting to have a growing belief that they can actually present change.
2: Yeah, I mean... I can't speak for other generations, but I just think of the countless issues that are impacting me and my friends and my cousins and all the people at my school and all across the country and the world. Um, It's hard not to be involved when you see your fellow students experiencing oppression and dealing with these really challenging issues. I mean, oppression has always been here. Oppression hit every generation before us, so I don't know what the difference is. But I think it's impossible for a lot of us to just stand still and watch.
0: Quinn Sullivan is president of the Loyola chapter of peace action. Jack Bertrand is president of the DePaul chapter of peace action. And they'll both be at the Peace Summit at Loyola University on Saturday. And the summit is running from 10 to 4 p.m. on Sheridan Road there at Loyola University. And a lot of different panels. And maybe the best place to get more information is the Facebook page.
2: Yeah, that's a great place to go. You can also visit the Chicago Area Peace Action website and they have information there.
0: Thanks a lot for joining us, Quinn Sullivan and Jack Bertrand.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for having us. Coming up after the break, we'll have our global activism series where we feature people who make the world a better place. And we'll talk with an organization that's just back from Mozambique. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. Watts of Love brings its patented solar lights to communities that need it. Founder Nancy Economo is just back from Mozambique where she helped distribute lights to people affected by Cyclone Idai. Good to see you, Nancy.
4: Well, thank you for having me, Jerome.
0: Uh, you have been doing Watts of Love for 10 years now. Uh, tell us a little about wh- how you started this organization that is bringing solar lighting to people.
4: Yes. Well, actually, it started five years ago. So we are we we are new, um, but I think our impact has been tremendous. I started Watts of Love in 2013 after I had a trip to the Philippines with my husband, and I was there at a feeding program, and I saw a young girl whose face was burnt by kerosene. And I said to the teacher, how does this happen? And the teacher said, all the time, because children don't have access to lighting. And so for me, that was the first time I realized you know, that people don't live without electricity and how big of a problem that was for children. So I came home after that trip and just really was compelled to do something.
0: And on your website, it says that over 900 million people do not have Lighting around the world, which we don't, even, I kind of don't appreciate. It's it's a massive amount of people.
4: Yeah, we don't realize it because it's something that's not discussed. But lighting is really the fastest way to help a family out of poverty. They can use that as a tool to start saving their money because people in developing nations, the ultra poor, spend thirty percent of their annual income burning kerosene. Toxic kerosene just goes up every night.
0: All right. Now, explain well, the process of, of bringing a light to a family. What is that like?
4: Yes. So, you know, when we go in, there's so many people that need a light. So when Watts of Love goes into an, an area, we work with local partners because we want to raise up local leaders and have them empower and teach their their own people, the nationals. So we will have our local partner identify a village that is remote usually hard to get to, the hidden poor. And they will come up with one per family, one per structure. So we'll have that list. We'll go in. We'll bring the entire community together. And we really go through a whole education process where we're teaching them because most of the people that receive our solar lights can't read, can't write, can't add. And so going through a picture, gram of saying, okay, you've now – you know, eliminated kerosene, you have a new light, which instantly that night they start saving money. And we tell them their children can have further education, they can have safety at night, and they can start, you know, and we say, what do you want to do with your extra six hours? Can you make, you know, fishing nets, bamboo barbecue sticks? Whatever is indigenous to that community, they can now start empowering themselves.
0: And they end up taking some of the extra money they're not spending on fuel, and they can do anything they want with it.
4: Absolutely, it's it's an accelerator. Like really, in thirty days, we'll say, okay, you know, if you spend one dollar a day burning kerosene, in one month you'll have thirty dollars. And they don't, and we'll say, what are you going to buy with that thirty dollars? And they'll immediately say rice, and we say, no, not rice, a little bit of rice. But we want you to buy something that is sustainable. And we say, how about a chicken? How much does a small chicken cost? And usually, on average, it's anywhere from four to seven chickens in 30 days. And having a chicken, they can feed their family. If their children get sick, they can sell that children and they can pay for medicine or go to a doctor. So it's really a sustainable solution for a family.
0: I'm talking with Nancy Economo about her organization, Watts of Love. It brings solar lights to people who need it around the world. Uh, now, I mentioned you were just back from Mozambique, and you've had a relationship in Mozambique. So you're, you were uh, well-suited to respond to the cyclone.
4: Yes, and we did that in three, in three phases. Um, we knew that the cyclone was coming, and a partner that we have been working with was going in the week before. You know, as, as you could see, the storm was approaching. So they flew in, and we equipped them with 100 lights so that they could go in, you know, secure the base, make sure that any medical teams had lighting because really without lights your work day is over with. So we equipped them with 100 lights to go in immediately. And then we were there the last week and we were training the trainers so that when we go in in our third phase of the recovery that we can have our local leaders prepared and identifying communities you know, responsibly. We want to make sure that we have enough for every person. And so those trainers are going to help us educate the people and distribute.
0: Now, in the case of Mozambique, what was it like there? Because the pictures are yeah. wild. Um, the, you mostly see above ground pictures of mud and water yes. everywhere. Yeah. Uh, what was it like?
4: Well, it's, you know, flying in, you just see water everywhere. There is. T- there are no roofs left. There, there, the whole city is pretty much wiped out. Um,
0: and it's Bayra, the the city there.
4: Yes, and um, we flew into that area. We were working in central command, uh, trying to just understand the what's happening there. And then we went out into a little bit of a rural area, and you know, the water. There's lots of paths you cannot get through. The roads are challenging, even before this cyclone it's challenging to get around Mozambique. So it's, it's really hard now.
0: And the families you ended up helping, who were yes. they?
4: So, you know, I think that's what's unique about Watts of Love. Because we are equipping and training one family at a time, um, those personal stories are really sometimes challenging to hear. And one of the families that we're at, um, you know, in Mozambique, they have a lot of traditional mud huts, And when I was there with this gentleman, he said, you know, I had a family of four and we were all in this one room and he showed me this room and there was just bamboo sticks left. And he said, my family sat in this room and watched our entire walls melting. Wow. And it's, it's devastating. And, you know, obviously when we told him why we were there to give him this solar light, the smile on his face the renewed hope, the dream that he can start rebuilding and his day does not end at 5 o'clock at night, that he's able to repack those walls and rebuild his home, and the recovery process is starting that night.
0: It's, it, um, I, it, this, people are, are so, um, in such a tight spot there. Tell me some about somebody else.
4: Yeah, so... Um, There's things that we don't think about, I think, as Americans. And there was another young father. um, His wife had passed away, and he had three children. And when we gave him his solar light, he was so excited. And he said, I could have used this two nights ago. He said, I walked into my home, and obviously no lights. And he said, I stepped on a large snake. Oh. And so that was inside of his home, and he had to go to his neighbors and ask for help because he didn't have candles, he didn't have a flashlight, he had nothing. So all of the neighbors came together because they know how serious those snakes are there. And they went in, and he said it was, you know, a large snake. They found it, killed it, and, um, you know, he said, now I can start a business with this light, helping his neighbors and going in. And, and you know, there, there's ants, there's rats, There's, there are things at night. And and as a mother, I'm a mom of five boys. I cannot imagine sitting in the dark of night and knowing there's something in my house.
0: Uh, I wanted to, to focus on the light itself mm-hmm. for a minute, uh, because you've done a lot of work to create a design that will work in Tough circumstances here, and you've got one sitting here on the table, and you were showing it to me before we went on. It's kind of a little amazing thing.
4: Yeah, it really is. And you know, when we started Watts of Love, I wanted to make sure that what we were giving people was going to last as long as possible because this may be their only opportunity to raise their family out of poverty. So you know, I was fortunate enough to be able to design and patent our own light. It's very small, and that's intentional because we, you know, most of the people that we serve are mobile. So they're out in the farm, they're out fishing. They they need something that they can physically wear on their body and keep with them.
0: And so, that that is like two inches square. It's yeah, not 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 even two inches square.
4: It is. It's but it's it's a mighty light. It's small, but uh, it has a solar panel on the back, and there are four light settings. The first light setting will last 120 hours of continuous runtime, number two will last 10 hours, number three will last two and a half, and then there's an emergency strobe. So, you know, that strobe light I thought was great, but now, you know, hearing the testimonies in the field of how important that flashing light is to them.
0: People really, how did the people really use that?
4: Yeah, so we were in Guatemala a month ago and we were, you know, disasters happen and usually in those areas are where the poorest people live because it's near the riverbeds, it's near the base of the volcano and in Guatemala, that's where we were is the base of the volcano and there are watchmen there at night. You know, they're burning kerosene and they have no, they don't have cell service and so to have that flashing light, they're there listening and watching the volcano, and they flash and communicate to each other.
0: Wow. <laughs> the light to talk about the volcano.
4: Yeah.
0: I'm talking with Nancy Economo. She's just back from Guatemala and Mozambique, and she distributes uh, lights to people who need them, solar lights. And uh, uh, tell me more about the, the light itself. You can wear it on your head. I don't think yes. people appreciate it. It's, it's on a rope, but it also yeah. can go on your head
4: yeah, so when we were designing it, we wanted to make sure that it fits what are their needs in the you know in the field. And number one, we made it where it could hang on a lanyard around your neck so that you can hide it inside of a blouse. you know it's it's safe and secure because stealing is a is a problem. And then we also you can detach it from the lanyard and put it around your head so your hands are free. So whether you're out farming, or making fishing nets or caring for your babies your hands are free and you're able to see and it's also you can hang it inside of a home so that's there's three different ways you can use it
0: Now people can find out more information about Watts of Love on your website
4: Yes it's www.wattsoflove that's w a t t s wattsoflove.org
0: And you've got a Facebook page which has lots of pictures from Mozambique and Guatemala and all the rest Yes now, you and I are taking part in a international service summit that's happening in Lyle on Saturday. So you can meet Nancy and me and lots of other people who are involved in uh, international NGO work at the International Service Summit. Uh, Nancy, you're going to be on the panel with me. Yes, I'm I'm I gonna am. I'm going to moderate. And uh, Zaire Salul from uh, Med Global is going to be there as well, who's been on the program a few times. The keynote speaker is Wendy Perlman from Northwestern University, and she wrote uh, a very popular book on um, it called We Crossed a Bridge, and it trembled voices from Syria about Syrian refugees and the Syrian refugee uh, experience on a, on a firsthand basis. And Wendy Perlman will do the keynote this uh, summit is happening at Benedictine University, and uh, we hope you can go. You could go to internationalservicesummit.org and find out more information. There will be about 30 groups there, and it will be a little like the old Global Activism Expo that we used to do at WBEZ, where we bring together groups and people can come together and find out more places they can help in the world and do things. And it will be great to be with you there on Saturday. Well, thank you. And uh, don't forget, tomorrow we're going to have another program, and we're going to have our global or our weekend passport segment where we let you know how to have a global good time on the weekend. And we'll talk with the creator of a play in the uh, Asian American show place. Check us out tomorrow here on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance, and thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.